Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians Podcast, Episode 7, The Joliet Marquette Reenactment. So, Patrick, 1973, what was going on in the United States? 1973, I was like nine years old. Well, I can tell you what you were doing. You were sitting with your dad at the gas station because the oil embargo was going on in 1973. I do remember lines at the gas station. Watergate was bubbling up. The Vietnam War was almost coming to a close. Wow. There was a lot going on in 1973, but it's significant for another reason. It was the 300th anniversary of the Marquette Joliet expedition. That's right. Marquette and Joliet in 1673. And the classic Chicago history is that Marquette and Joliet were the first white men to come through Chicago. This was the traditional history and it's 300th anniversary. And so you got to do something. So this podcast is about what they did. The reenactment of the Joliet and Marquette expedition. And we were lucky enough to sit down with three of the crew members of this expedition, Reed Lewis, Ken Lewis, his brother, and Father Chuck McHenry. Former father. To talk about this fantastic voyage that had occurred 46 years prior to our conversation. Exactly. And for those who have listened to episode four and five of these podcasts know that Reed Lewis and Ken Lewis were involved in the LaSalle 2 expedition. Which happened three years later. But we talked to them after watching this amazing documentary on this expedition, which we didn't even know existed. Right. It's on YouTube. The Last Voyageurs. So in the conversation, you will hear us referring to the documentary. And it was written and directed by Bob Osborne. The photography and editing was by Chris Burrett. And it was narrated by Bill Guthrie. One of the first things we asked was, well, how did this all occur that they decide to do this reenactment on the 300th anniversary right what was the impetus that made them be part of this and they gave us a perfect answer i think our expedition was largely responsible for the interest people eventually did take in the joliet marquette expedition and then they got on board people along the river the great river road And they started putting bills before Congress. Professor Arnold was one of our great helps. Well, we started accumulating people just like George Arnold that were convinced by our argument that as a Midwestern state, the site of Joliet Marquette's scholarship that this expedition deserved to be memorialized in some way because it was too important a part of our history to ignore. Well, my name is Ken Lewis, 
and I have always been an ardent sportsman. I speak passable French, not great, and this expedition, when it was described to me, just caught my fancy. My name is Chuck McHenry. At the time of the expedition, I was a assistant pastor at Holy Family Church on Roosevelt Road in Chicago. I had done some canoeing and it was kind of a chance to say, you only go around this world once, why not do this exciting exposition, but also to be the stand-in for Jesuits uh, during the time. I'm Reed Lewis, brother of Ken Lewis, who I've always admired. He's my older brother. I was teaching French out in Elgin at Larkin High School, and I'd known Ralph, whose idea this whole thing was, since the days of scouting. And so he bounced the idea off me, and I said, sounds great, why don't we do it? Now, I was just curious then, Reed, how did you end up selecting the crew and, and uh, the, the seven of you that went on this expedition? Ralph is the one who selected the crew members. I think I was the last one. I don't think I said yes till maybe January of 72, hedging my bets. <laughs> well, and to see whether I could get away from yeah. the parish. But I think I was the last one. And then we, my memory is meeting in Reed's house with most of the crew to go over itinerary and plans and so forth. But I'll tell you, I think the entire crew felt what luck to find Chuck, <laughs> of all people, who is so highly qualified. I mean, not only from the right order, but also canoeing, <laughs> young enough to do it, and also an enjoyable person just to be wow. with. Mm, thank you. Chuck and Dean Campbell were two crew members, and then... Lee Brosky. He worked on the antenna of the Sears Tower. Yeah, he was a yeah. high-wire, high-steel guy. And so modest, yeah. you never guess. And ironically, the Sears Tower was completed in 1973, the same year as the expedition. Yeah. And he worked on the antenna, I believe. I think, I think so. Yes. Yeah. And then there was James Phillips. Ah. Ah, Jimmy. <laughs> James Phillips was... Widely known throughout the nation, really, as the fox. He was an environmental activist, and he took on the name of the fox and conducted various exploits around the country and got his name in a lot of media as a defender of the environment. And the purpose of his activities was never to injure people or punish people. He was very scrupulous about that, but the purpose was to call attention to the fact that these big corporations were destroying America. And he represented on the trip the environmental conservationist point of view. Did you notice the uh, changes in the environment uh, through the intrusion of man as they started out? We could drink the water right yeah. from where, just dip in and drink from your paddles and that. And now, as, as we get to where man has concentrated his forces around certain living areas, that the products of those, those areas are put into the environment, now we're faced with a different situation. It's like we're, we're closing one chapter and going into another. Nobody knew that it was Jim. It was kept a secret. Yeah. And For like decades, right? Oh, yeah. In Chicago. Did you know he was a fox during the expedition? Yes. All the people that he inspired to help him with his campaigns. You know, there's one person we have not mentioned who I admired in an extraordinary way, and that is the student who played the role of the Indian boy who was given to Juliette Jeffrey Leclerc. 
he was, what, 14 years old. And he interacted with the rest of the group, all adults, just as another adult. We never had the feeling that he was a kid. I mean, he was just tough, never complained. And I admired that terrifically, considering his age. He didn't look for any excuse that he should deliver, just like everybody else was delivering, and did an incredible job. And his dad had a scout troop that had the Voyager theme with the name Leclerc. There's yes. some origins there. Sure. He wasn't a stranger to the concept, but uh, as they say, he, he just performed a remarkable way. He lives in Wisconsin now. Tell us about that first day at St. Iglesias. <laughs> it was May 17th. We slept underneath a canoe the way we normally would with the dragging the tarp over. So we were under the canoe and we peek out and <laughs> the whole beach where we were was covered with snow. Everything was covered with snow. That was a startling beginning of our trip. But we uh, packed up, loaded the canoes, and I remember wading in the water to get the chests and everything in there, and it was freezing, freezing cold. A little bit of grumbling, maybe? Yeah, well, a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the departure, I remember a Coast Guard official came up and said, we can't guide you because we wanted to go underneath the Mackinac Bridge. And he said, it's a little too dangerous or too rough for us. You know, he's got this outboard motor and all that. We just continued on, and then the great picture from the Milwaukee Sentinel, I think, is is that the waves were about three feet. So there's a great picture of seven of us, and you can see the two prows and sterns of the canoes underneath the Mackinac Bridge, but you can't see our bodies. The only thing you can see is our heads. And you gave a nice prayer in the film. Though. Thank you. That was, you know, I thought about it, but it was pretty much ad-libbed. It wasn't anything that I had written out. Father in heaven, we begin this expedition in your hands, not knowing some of the trials, not knowing many of the joys. But we do begin with hope and with a great spirit, a spirit which the first voyageurs had. I was hoping for safety. I was hoping for a successful voyage. But I was also hoping that none of us would get hurt and that we would meet a lot of people. And the purpose of the trip, which was to inform and to tell people about what the trip was. Well, I would imagine looking out on Lake Michigan and seeing two and three foot waves would put some steel into your words to ask for safety. (laughs) I'd also say on the first day, we paddled to Epouffet. The people came out and gave us potluck dinner. Because of sunlight was still up, we decided to continue on to Hog Island. And so we went back out on the water and the wind was following us. So we put up our sails and we kind of captioned that as the Hog Island sleigh ride because we sailed from Apufet to this Hog Island campground. And that's where we spent the night. Yes, the Hog Island sleigh ride named after the sleigh rides that the whale hunters used to have. Once they got hooked into a whale, they'd just hang on and that whale would tow them all around until he got tired. So we were moving right along. And none of us except Chuck and Lee were very experienced sailors. So we were holding on for dear life and just hoping we could find a place to turn out of the wind. There was a story on our descent of Green Bay that just tickled me. We were having a lot of rain and a tremendous fog bank just rolled down the lake. We couldn't see 
more than three feet in any direction. It's a very disorienting and scary feeling. We didn't know where the hell we were. We didn't know if we were paddling out deeper into the lake or paddling into a inhospitable shoreline, but Father Chuck saved the day. Yeah, we were kind of gingerly paddling around because we were in an area where there was a lot of grasses and so forth, and I heard a red-winged blackbird. And so I said, well, that's a red-winged blackbird. The shore has got to be very close over here. So then we paddled very carefully over, and Ken says, there's land. So we were able to get ashore without any problems. But nobody else put that together. <laughs> you were the guy. We were going for authenticity, but in some cases that wasn't possible. We couldn't authentically drink from the Des Plaines River as they did. So we vowed that our authenticity would stop short of putting anybody's life in danger or person in danger. That was our criterion. Is this going to risk anybody getting hurt or getting killed? The skin of the canoes were fiberglass, but made to look like birch bark. But the interior, the thwarts and the ribs and everything, were all wood that Ralph made. So if you looked at the canoe on the interior, you'd say that that was a real Indian canoe. And we had guys from 10 or 15 feet away, you couldn't tell the difference. That You would think that was a real birch bark canoe. And then there was also Bill Dwyer. Bill was on my canoe. Bill was a bow man. Dean Campbell was the second. I was third. And Lee Broski was the stern man, or Gouvenai, as they say. And in Reed's canoe, it was... Ken was the bow man. Reed was second. But then when Jeffrey came, the Indian boy, he was second. Reed was third. And Jim Phillips was the Gouvenai on his canoe. Each canoe had a chest that Ralph made. And then each of us had a pack. I had a sea bag type of thing for the people who were not in the bow and stern. Ralph made uh, look like bales, furs, that we sat on that were fairly comfortable, but it gave us height because we were about as high as the thwarts were. Also, I got to say, you guys had great hats. My hat really has foreign origins because I think Father Joe Donnelly worked his magic and got a Borsellino. So the hat that I'm wearing, which is, they call it a fried egg hat. If you look at the priests in Rome today who are walking around, that's the kind of hat that I had. It was a real Borsellino from Rome. Oh, okay. And of course you were wearing the black. A black cassock, cassock that yes. the Jesuits would have worn. Uh, Ken has just brought over a picture. This is you, Ken, with the, that's me. With the knit cap on, with the tassel, and yeah. uh, you, you got your beard. Oh, that's great. And you've attached a feather to the end of the tassel as well, I see. You look like you just saw a really good-looking woman. (laughs) (laughs) And you're thinking about your next move. (laughs) Probably true. (laughs) And inside of that hat, it had that tassel that hung down, which was just hollow like a sleeve except it was sealed at the end. And the voyageurs used to put their pipes and their tobacco and their fire-starting equipment in there. Place to stay dry. Reed, you had the hat I associate with, like, the Three Musketeers. It's more for a nobleman. The nobility wore the hats of the French court, 
And we had how many nobles? You were Jean Moreau on this one, right? Right. Yeah. A disreputable character. And you had a great dialogue. Hey, Vivi, no portage was ever too long for me, eh? Fifty songs could I sing. I have saved the life of ten voyageurs. I had twelve wives. And six running dogs. I spent all my money in pleasure. But were I young again, I should live my life the same way over. There is no life so happy as the life of a voyageur. That was a quote that I found in a book by Grace Lee Newt, and she opened her book with that quote from an ancient voyageur. And so I memorized it, and we opened the show with it. It was very funny, and you really sold it. Mm -hmm. You have an acting background, right? I do. But when you got to Portage, Wisconsin, and the band played the Marseillaise, (laughs) did you think you were onto something? was certainly gratifying. I watched the video. Your songs were great. The Voyageur songs, the tunes are very catchy. Well, and also, they had a purpose. And a song that most people know is Alouette. Alouette, the way it's translated. So a lark, the bird. Alouette, nice little alouette. Alouette, I pluck a feather from you. And then you go through pluck a feather from your head, and then you repeat the whole song, and then pluck a feather from your beak, and you go on and on. It goes on a long time because it was a paddling song. It was designed to keep the rhythm of the paddles and to keep up morale. So it was enjoyable, that kind of a song. From what I understand, the man who knew the most songs was paid the most. And he was the guy that was the leader in the call-and-response format of the song because that gave everybody a chance to catch their breath because they're paddling along at full speed and trying to sing it. You can't last too long. So somebody would sing, Je te plumerai la tête. And then the whole crew would sing, Je te plumerai la tête, et la tête, et la tête, et le bec, et le bec. And that way, everybody had a part in the song, but they didn't have to sing all the time. You were very good with the guitar. I managed. I don't know. I'm not much of a guitarist. My fingers always sound like they can't work. 
We had a very tight schedule visiting all these towns that had been preparing for our arrival for weeks. This is a good place to thank Phyllis Eubanks, who was in charge of the liaison team, where she was the one who was the liaison between the towns and the canoes. So she would tell us, when you get there, you're going to see such and such a landmark, and you're going to set up your camp right near there, and then here's the schedule. You're going to have dinner with the town, and then you're going to do your program for the townspeople. And she had to arrange all these towns along the way and then make sure everything was fine up to the last minute and then communicate with us where we should go, what time we should be where. And that was a thankless job. It's like being part of a stage crew. You know, you get all the grief and none of the glory. I'd like to add Dave Lane, a shore party. And the two of them worked just together wonderfully. They had Ralph's band with extra gear, but they worked really well as a team and prepared all the meetings and so forth that we enjoyed once we got to the sites. In one case, I know you did four shows in one day. That's correct, yeah. In between paddling from town to town. But it was a show, paddle, show, paddle, probably lunch, paddle, show, paddle, and then an evening. Reed, did you ever feel like, boy, I don't feel like performing today? No, because the main purpose of the expedition was to get the message out to the public. It was an educational device. And so, I mean, so I, as a teacher, you can't say, well, I don't feel like teaching today, and <laughs> I want to stay home in bed. So they never even crossed our minds. Presentations were our equivalent to the voyagers meeting with the Indians where they pulled ashore and then sharing a banquet and trading gifts. So the voyagers' day wasn't over when they hit shore either. How was it, though, going from you know living in a house and having shelter to then being outdoors all day long for several months? I don't remember being stressed. It was just kind of like, well, yesterday you slept in a bed. Tonight you're in St. Ignace and you're sleeping in a sleeping bag. And you spent the rest of the day outside. I mean, we were uncomfortable at times because you were either cold or hot or wet. You know, at least we were able to pull into a port. And because we gave a program, groups of people. So we got a shower every day. That helped a little bit. Sure. But I don't really remember being uncomfortable to the point where uh, I wish I had a bed. Did the mosquitoes bother you? A little bit. (laughs) I think noceums also did, especially in Wisconsin. Yeah. They were kind of bad. Biting flies coming up the Mississippi, because there, if you stop paddling, you go backwards right away. So we had to keep paddling, but the flies would come in and they'd get your legs. That was very annoying. They like to get you when you're cleaning fish and your hands are full of fish gore (laughs) (laughs) and you can't swat them. And then they really zero in on them. My character, Pierre Moreau, on the expedition, as part of his talk to the audience, I used to describe it as, we came into Wisconsin and the mosquitoes were the size of small owls. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about mosquitoes, we did use mosquito netting because the mosquitoes were ferocious down in the lower Mississippi. From what I read somewhere, the way they coped with it, the voyageur, is they built a platform of crossed logs, and then they built a little smudge fire underneath it, and they'd lie down on this pile of logs 
and the smoke would keep the mosquitoes away. They had to be careful, of course, how much smoke, you know, and uh, not have a big fire or anything, because they were faced with the same problem of dealing with mosquitoes. I had read somewhere that if you eat garlic, that'll keep the mosquitoes away. So at first we ate a ton of garlic, and it kept us away from each other. <laughs> it didn't just even do much for the mosquitoes. <laughs> That was worse than the wet, smelly wool that you're wearing. Right, yeah, right. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Did you lose any weight on the expedition? I think, if anything, we may have gained a little weight in muscle because yeah. you're putting on muscle and you're paddling all day long. And it was interesting how when towns would have a meal for us, some towns, they would want to make something authentic. So we'd have like a raccoon and others would just be a regular dinner. But the same things that the Indians probably served them when they arrived in town. Right. When they arrived in an Indian town. Yeah. You must have been really hungry most of the time. Is there a favorite meal or a, a favorite banquet that you remember that stands out? I'd say the first banquet that we had was in a buffet because it was the first one where the community came out and it gave us a potluck dinner. And then I think for me in Dubuque, we went to a brewery and we had steaks and they were pretty good sized steaks. And I think I had two. That's probably the first time I ever did that. <laughs> but uh, those two I remember the most. Do you ever want a pizza? We ever just like, can we just order a pizza? <laughs> There's one other one. On the northern shore of Lake Michigan was at Marquette. We pulled in and it was probably eight o'clock or so. So we pulled up, got out, and all of a sudden, a couple of families from the homes came down to see us. And one of them said, have you eaten yet? We said, no, but we're, we're gonna cook her. She says, wait. She went back to the house and her family brought down half of a turkey and all the rest of the trimmings oh, wow. that they had at dinner and we ate on top of the canoe. So that's a third dinner I remember uh, because it was just this family in a parade, you know, yeah. came down, had all the trimmings of a terrific turkey dinner. It was great. I think that was the locale when we first had a bunch of kids coming down the hill screaming, pirates, pirates. historians. <laughs> <laughs> never alone. You would set up camp and people would be surrounding you, right? Right. That's right. In fact, one morning, Ken woke up, had to get out of the tent quickly, and there were three people right in front of the, of the you know, waiting for somebody right. to come out. Yeah. If you have to go to the bathroom, that's not what you want. No. <laughs> they gave you a parade somewhere near the Wisconsin River. It was a massive yeah. parade. That was a prairie de Chine. And you guys were in Jeeps. Yes, And right. you looked very grateful for the ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it was in Prairie du Chien. But I think one of the more memorable sights in the film is there's a bluff park across from where the Wisconsin River comes into the Mississippi River. Mm. And they had broadcast through maritime radio that everybody would stay away because we were coming from down the Wisconsin and they wanted to get a shot of us coming into the Mississippi River. And Chris has got a really great shot of the two canoes coming down the Wisconsin and turning into the Mississippi, and there's no other boat around. It just you know, goes, again, back to 300 years. It's a big bluff, right. a big body of water. Well, that's the Mississippi. Yeah. You know what I mean? We right. think of the Fox River as a big river, and below Cairo, the Mississippi, what? If we wanted to change sides, 
it would take 20 minutes of paddling to get across from west to east or east to west. Could you feel the change in the current instantly when you would join these big rivers? Going down upper Mississippi, we figured the current was like maybe three, four miles, but below Cairo, where Ohio comes in, then I guess we thought it was five or six miles. I mean, what kind of looks would you get just from the banks of the river or the towns? When we stopped in Baraboo, a lady came up and she said, you know, when you were paddling down Lake Wisconsin, she was up on a high bluff, and so she could only see the canoes. There was no other boats around. And we were singing one of the paddling songs to keep up the cadence. And she said it was just so moving to see the canoes. We were all in the attire. And then hearing the French songs, she said, I thought it was 300 years ago. There were a few people who told us along the way that they got tears in their eyes as they saw us come in. Like Chuck just said, they felt transported back 300 years. And as a reenactor, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And time after time, I heard the comment, this reenactment, this vision that was conjured in front of us was so moving that I cried or I felt like crying or I felt like I was transported back into a different century. And so many people got an almost spiritual feeling from watching us. And the thing is that the only way we had of gauging what kind of impact we were having was to look in people's eyes. And there you could see it. But to us, it felt like just another day with wet socks. (laughs) (laughs) What about the night your canoes were stolen? We were hosted by the resort at Illinois Beach. Yeah, I've been up there. It's a nice resort. Beautiful, yeah. And our canoes were just as we usually left them, pulled up on the beach. I don't know who discovered it first, but somebody came down and said, our canoes have been stolen. And that was a matter of consternation for us. But Jim Phillips, he was a winsome guy. He spotted them coming around a pier, and he ran out on the pier, and he hailed them. He said, hey, guys, what are you doing? They said, well, we're just paddling. They'd had about two six-packs apiece. <laughs> so, just paddling. And Jim said, what are you paddling? Those are pretty neat canoes. Yeah, we found them. Well, could you come over and give me a closer look? They said, sure. And they came over, paddled over to the pier, and... Jim treated them very nicely. They liked the canoes, and they weren't malicious in any way. But some of the rest of us, including me, I used to be a lot more hot-headed than I am now. I came racing down that pier ready to clock those guys. Stealing our canoes, they don't know how valuable they are. (laughs) What would the voyageurs have done if they stole their canoes? Oh, I think they They had muskets. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My memory of of the event was that Phillips hailed him, like you said, but then he said, could you give me a ride? He got in the stern of the canoe. These guys were paddling the wrong way. They were facing the wrong way. (laughs) And so he was able to kind of turn the canoe and maneuver it back to shore. Phillips was really clever on that. And then when you got to St. Louis... You actually met members of Marquette's relatives. Yes, we did. That's remarkable. And we did camp right underneath the arch. 
and then they took us down to the museum there, and a descendant of Marquette was there to say hello to us and so forth. And yeah. the French government had arranged to fly this relative over. That, that's right. He had some book from his older relatives from Marquette. When you go to St. Louis and you stand on the river and you look at the arts, there's this great stairway going up. Mm-hmm. And so we had to carry all our stuff up that stairway oh. and then camp underneath the arch. There wasn't anyone saying, hey, can I give you a hand with that? <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, there were, but we always declined. This was something that we had to do. So, right, yeah. One of the great quotes from the expedition was attributed to a young boy who watched Father Marquette struggling up a muddy bank with a canoe over his head, pack on his back. Talk about that boy, Chuck. Lee and I were carrying one of the chests up a fairly steep bank. And this kid kind of looks at us, and then he says, boy, you must be really strong for a priest. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you came to the Cairo, Ohio River, that's a massive body of water. Oh, yeah. As you got lower on the river, there were numerous dams above the Ohio, and we had to figure out a way to get around those dams. We had to either get permission to lock through the locks, or sometimes they didn't want us doing that, and we'd have to portage around. Oh, how much portaging did you do on the trip? Not a great deal, but enough to tire you out. These are 90-pound packs you're pulling yeah, that's what the voyageurs commented on, and that's the figure they gave, 90-pound pack. I don't know. Jim Phillips was skeptical of that. We'd come to a landing. We'd take a load across to the other side, rest up by walking back, take another load, rest up by walking back, and take another load. So that's five times across the portage for every portage we made. What about when you got into the South? I believe it's Helena, Arkansas. There's a statue of Father Marquette. We went from Helena to the mouth of the Arkansas, 80 miles. 80 miles in one day? Yeah. We were gonna get up, leave about six, but we couldn't get away until about eight because there was a pretty ferocious rainstorm in Helena. So we were delayed, and then, you know, the normal course of time, they had some stronger paddles than we did in the Marquette canoe, so the Joliet canoe got to the Arkansas first. Okay. And then our canoe lagged, and so that night it was not a stormy night, but it wasn't moonlit, and so there was clouds over, and we were paddling in the dark. That's where, in the film, we get that little bit where we had a shadow boat with us at that time, and he's calling out to towboats to say, do you know where the Marquette? He had a southern accent. <laughs> Yeah, Cap, uh, we're at the Marquette Juliet Expedition down here uh, at the mouth of the Arkansas River. We were paddling in the dark probably an hour. I think we paddled over a wing dam. We had made the decision, this was probably around 10 o'clock, that we were going to just beach it. And so we had already gotten out of the canoe, and we saw a light at the distance. So we thought, well, maybe that's a boat. Well, actually... It was Ralph Freeze running up the banks of the Mississippi, hollering out, are you here, where are you? Finally, we were in shouting distance, and he said, you're only a mile away from the mouth of the Arkansas River. Get back in the canoe and come on, and I'll, I'll kind of guide you. So we did, and then we were able to join the rest of the crew at the mouth of the Arkansas That was an emotional moment, because we didn't know what happened. Yeah. And you didn't have a radio, obviously. No. no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So well, it's something terrible could have happened. Potentially. The thing that we sensed the most danger from 
were the channel marking buoys because they were huge iron things that weighed maybe 500, 800 pounds, and they were fastened to the bottom of the river. So they're just sitting there in this five to six mile hour current, stationary, and making no sound, having no lights on them. So if the canoe should accidentally be carried by the current into one of them, it would have been a combination of the speed we were paddling at plus the speed of the current, and we would have rammed into that huge iron buoy. It would have been like running your car into a stone wall at 10 miles an hour do a lot of damage that way. Your canoe left the Arkansas campground. Phillips is back there and he said something like, we'll find out if we can paddle up the river. Coming up the Mississippi, Reed had devised a way we paddled maybe only six to 10 feet off the shore so we could get slack water. We were told when people found out that we were going to paddle downstream on the Mississippi to the mouth of the Arkansas, where we would turn around, as they did, and paddle back up the Mississippi to the Illinois River. We had more people tell us, especially people who were used to taking boats on the Mississippi, they said it is impossible to paddle against the current of the Mississippi River. They didn't know how to read the river for a canoe. A boat and a motor, you have to stay in the channel so you don't run aground. But with a canoe, it's got a shallow draft. But what you do is you stay as close to the bank as possible. Wherever there's a little projection from the bank, it's blocking the current. And what that does is it shoots the current off toward the center of the river and creates a vacuum behind it, which makes a current that's going upstream. So when you stay close to the bank, you're actually paddling with the current until you get to that projection, in which case you have to fight your way around that projection and get back close to the bank. And it's a slow process, but you're working in cooperation with Mother Nature. These projections that helped us along so much by creating eddies that would zoom us upriver were, many of them were man-made, and they're called wing dams, and they were intended to funnel the current into the center of the river and scrub it out so that there was sufficient water for the large towboats and tugboats to navigate. And I remember one time there was one of these big barges going by us and the captain said over his loudspeaker, I'll bite that Joliet and Marquette never saw nothing like this before. (laughs) (laughs) Concentrated on paddling and staying out of the riverboats. Occasionally, talking about the riverboats, that was something we had to watch out for because they couldn't turn on a dime. And so we had to watch out and stay out of their way. Every once in a while, we'd be paddling pretty fast and you'd hit something and it was a catfish who was sunning in the shallow water. And of course, your paddle would hit it the catfish would respond, and then you'd lose stroke on the paddle because it, you were startled. You weren't expecting it. That was a real startler. But we really hit some big catfish because they would really react. And now, and now it'd be Asian carp. Probably. Right. The thing is, and you wouldn't believe this because we were vigorously exercising, <laughs> but it was actually possible to fall asleep while you were paddling. 
And so we used to, in our canoe, love to watch Father Chuck because after about an hour or so, his head would start to nod a little bit and his stroke would fall out of rhythm with the other paddlers. I don't remember that at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he's just on the verge of dozing and he'd stick his paddle in the middle of the back of one of those alligator gars or catfish, and that fish would come leaping out of the water, twisting and turning, and of course it would wake Chuck up with a violent start. But it was great entertainment for us. We loved it. You're a great storyteller. <laughs> but but this, was, this was true with all of us. That paddling a canoe for endless hours, and especially in the heat as it was paddling up the Mississippi against the current, paddling is kind of like rocking somebody in or to sleep. And little by little, you kind of doze off. Not because you're so terribly tired, but it's the rhythm that kind of dozes you off, you know. And you were paddling fast in that film very, that I watched. Right, very, yeah. You're, you're very right. vigorous in your paddling. 56 to 60 strokes a minute. We pulled into Dubuque. As I recall, there was an island in the middle of the little bay. And so we were pulling in, and usually at 55, 56 strokes, and a houseboat came up beside us. And he said something like, well, you guys are really paddling fast, you know? We said, yeah, we're doing about 56, 50. He says, I don't believe you. So I said, well, time us, you know? So we actually had to paddle around the darn island to, <laughs> to do that. He said, well, you guys really are. He says, you're paddling about 58 strokes a minute. And still, for a priest, you're paddling pretty hard, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ken, in the film, when you get to Grafton, Illinois, you just canoed like 560 miles north on the Mississippi. You got very emotional in your I speech. Did. I did. And I thought it was very moving. You were talking about this accomplishment that you had done. Yeah, and I was trying not to crow about it, but <laughs> we had had people along our route who would say, if them voyageurs think they're going to turn around at the mouth of the Mississippi and paddle back up it, they're very much mistaken because nobody paddles up the Mississippi against the current. And so we talked to them and the new madras gave us a case of beer. But when, <laughs> when we got up to where this one guy had taunted us, he came down and I said, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, on August 19th, after successfully ascending the Mississippi River for 591 miles, we turned into the Illinois at Grafton. And the next time someone tells you one of your dreams is impossible, don't listen to them, huh? Every time I see the film and it gets to that point, I get teary-eyed because it's the high moment of it this was. is our achievement to get oh, up yeah. the river. What was it like to get to Starve Rock? Because you had done reenactments, I think, as a Boy Scout with Ralph Fries and yeah, Starve right, Rock. Done things, yeah, In the film, you're met by a Native American. Right, and he explained the ceremony of the peace pipe. It was beautifully done because he was not doing it for the show. He just said, now in my culture, and explained it like you're just sitting and having a cup of coffee together. Haina Sign was his name. Yes. And it translated to 
Little Beaver? Right. So when you got to Starve Rock, you knew you were, what, about 80 miles from Chicago, so you're getting close. For myself, I never thought in terms of, oh, we're almost there or almost there. Just take another paddle stroke. <laughs> because you prolong anything if you keep putting big goals ahead of yourself. Instead, just worry about that next paddle stroke or the next step. So sort of like how to eat an elephant or how, right. do, how one do you paddle bite at Mississippi time, yeah. one paddle at a time? Right, exactly. When you get to the Chicago Portage, Jim Phillips is talking, and he's disgusted. He's so angry because you would basically be climbed through a sewer. Because at the time, the, the displaced river it was terrible. He was so angry in that video, it was startling. So he had to get out of the canoe to let you guys paddle up. So then he had to walk about the last, through what, the 100 walk. yards through a, a muck, you know? Yeah. And when he got out of that, he was really seething. And that's why you see in the, in the presentation. We had to crawl ignominiously in the shore through a sewer, which you and I and the politicians and the other people of this society have allowed to happen because of our apathy and our neglect. He's just saying the politicians and so forth and so forth. You know, it's a sewer. A crab just clammed up off of a barrel to get a breath of fresh air. It was yeah. great, great presentation. Chuck, we were talking earlier that you said mass on a canoe mm -hmm. for Cardinal mm -hmm. Cody and Mayor Richard J. Daley. That doesn't happen every day. No, it didn't. It was a nice day, and there were a lot of people standing on that bridge that goes across at Michigan watching us as we came under the bridge and then turned in at the foot of Pioneer Court and unloaded our canoes, came up, and set camp. That was moving to me because these were Chicago heroes. They were politicians, but they were still heroes. The first mayor, Daley, Cardinal Cody, some of the really upper bigwigs in the Chicago machine were all there to greet us, and Mayor Daley said such nice things about us. So did Cardinal Cody. <laughs> so, I mean, that was kind of a meeting of the spiritual and power elite of Chicago at that time. Yeah, it was a nice privilege. There were other priests up there. In fact, the priest who had a full headdress on, he was a representative of one of the Indian groups here in Chicago. But it was a, a privilege to be up there and a, a unique experience. And from the film, it looks like Ralph Fries was a master of ceremonies. He was, and I thought gave a really nice welcome. Uh, you don't see it all in the film, but he gave a little bit of a accounting of what we had done and what we had accomplished. Our men have had a pretty rough two days of it the last couple of days, struggling up the last few miles to the, that height of land known as the Chicago Portage. Partly because of the problems that we have caused, pollution and otherwise. But they are now here looking forward to the clear waters of Lake Michigan, of which we're all so proud. I'm very happy to see the dignitaries before me, and I would like at this time to introduce our favorite mayor, the Honorable Richard J. Daly, to say a few words. We hope working together, we can make our city a better city and fulfill the prophetic words of those early explorers and priests that told us what it would be. Congratulations to all who played a part in having this two-day celebration, celebration of the great 
journeys of 300 years ago. What was it like when you got onto Lake Michigan again? You had been on the Mississippi, you'd been on the Illinois, the Displains. What was it like to get on this big body of water again? Well, one thing all of us had terrific respect for all the waterways that we traveled. In the training we had, too, there is no place for macho. In fact, Zsa Gabor has a great line. She said, macho does not prove mucho. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one thing with both expeditions. There wasn't a crew member who practiced macho, but wore the proper clothing for the conditions and did things safely. But that was all part of our training, too. The voyageurs feared the Grand Lot. They were river people, and the rivers were frequently more dangerous than the big water because of the rapids. They'd seek out rapids to just see if they could run them, but the big water was actually probably more dangerous. So if they could avoid crossing big stretches of water and portage around it, they were glad to do it. But if they were called upon to paddle around rapids, they were perfectly happy to do that. They, that was a contest to them. Maybe they were like, we're not going to portage. We're going to risk it. Yeah. You know, that's probably more what it was. You know? I think it was. On Lake Michigan, I don't really remember a lot of rough water. I think in the film, we're leaving Waukegan and the canoes are in three foot waves. And so that's kind of exciting because the canoes are really doing their thing by going through the water and we were able to kind of get out beyond the shore waves. I think the toughest water that we had was in Green Bay. And when you arrived the first mm -hmm. time, you said there wasn't much of a welcome. What about the second time? The second time was the return. Yes. So people were on bridges. A couple of schools were there with a band. Our shore party was there. Phyllis and Dave. Ralph was there. Father Joe was there. Your parents were there. That's where the original crew ended, and that's where we ended. What were you thinking that morning you set out on the last day? You'd been on the water for four months. I think we were looking to the end, obviously. We actually went beyond to the bridge, slapped the bridge with our paddle, and came back to where the shore party was. I think we were just relieved that we were able to accomplish it, that we were all safe, and that we had really done a very positive experience for not just for us, it was 3,500 miles of paddling and meeting people and giving presentations. It was really a positive experience, for certainly for me, I'm sure for you guys too. So it was over, but it was over in a good sense. I still, when we've gotten together in previous reunions, I say, you realize what we accomplished. There were only two crews of people who have done the Marquette Joliet expedition, and we're one of them. Right. And we actually paddled up the Mississippi River. I'm pretty proud of that. Oh, yeah. Some people don't get the reenactment gene. They say, well, history happened, and then trying to go back and redo history is, can cause problems or whatnot. And I've thought a lot about this reading about you guys. I've come to the conclusion that the reenactment, you spark the fire. You got it going. But when people criticize that, have they ever thought of movies? How many movies are reenactments of an historic event? And yet they accept the movie. It helps us remember history. But I think the picturesque aspects of us 
coming into a town, a river town, in those canoes dressed as we were, the word most often used by people I talked to was moving. If we could connect moving in the sense of engaging and beautiful and wonderful with history, how much more interest there would be in history in this country. Reed, didn't you go to the rendezvous as a young man? Yes. I take our students to the rendezvous at Fort de Chartres and then Wiatnan, which is in Indiana, West Lafayette. So I would take our students to both of those. We'd study the Voyager, and then Ralph generously loaned us one of his big canoes where he could put 18 students, and one of the school buses would tow it down with our students, or actually it's one of the teachers who towed with his car, and then students would be on the bus, and we'd have a police escort out of Elgin, and the policeman would say over his microphone, bon voyage, as he saw us <laughs> off on the uh, tollway. And then we would camp out and tip the canoe, and we'd sing the Voyager songs around the campfire. And people, other visitors to the rendezvous, would say to a student, now, what is this song about? Suddenly, the student became the teacher. And they would explain to them the significance of the song, that was kind of a precursor for me to do the La Salle expedition with students. Reed, you were awarded something from the French government about your French teaching in this country. As a teacher, having done this, I received the Palms Académiques, the academic palms. And then also I received the Medal of the City of Paris. And Jacques Chirac presented it to me at the time he was the mayor of the city of Paris. I did a 35-city tour with the presentation that I used to do about the LaSalle expedition. One comment that I got frequently from the French was, you Americans still have that spirit, don't you? And I reminded them where the spirit began, with Joliet Marquette yeah. and LaSalle. You know, and that's how we come into that spirit, and we must not let it die. I was taught that our country was developed from the east to the west, by the covered wagon. If they tell you that, you say, excusez-moi, that is not so. Because our part of the country was developed from the north to the south, not by the covered wagon, but by the canoe. And it was the French that did it. And you know something else? They will tell you, democracy was born in the east, perhaps in Philadelphia. If they tell you that, you say, excusez-moi, that is not so. Democracy began in my state of Illinois because the Frenchmen and women voted, and you did not have to be rich, while meantime, out east, only men could vote, and they had to be rich. So you see, we have very much to be proud of. Also, it's interesting in Illinois to see the various French names, Desplaines, which in France would be pronounced Desplaines. And one thing that I find very interesting is a town not far from Kankakee that was Bourbonus. For the bicentennial, they changed the pronunciation to Bourbonnais, which is the way it would be pronounced in French. Do you ever get asked about the Marquette-Joliet expedition, or is it kind of eclipsed by LaSalle, too? If somebody had some knowledge of that, then they'll ask me, 
if they know I did the expedition. But with time, less people know that I did that. But history buffs are still interested just in the Marquette Joliet voyage. Oh, yeah. Even, even not knowing about the expedition. Right, yeah. And that's why the Maritime Museum is doing an extraordinary thing in making this tangible because we've emphasized other parts of our history, but not talking much about the Voyager and Juliet and Marquette and LaSalle. This has been fantastic. Thank you very much for sitting down and talking with us. Well, thank you for sharing the story because you are an historic extension because we did a reenactment and you're keeping the whole story alive. Chris, my gosh, what a fun afternoon chatting with these guys. We had a great time. Well, we'd really like to thank Reed and Ken Lewis and Chuck McHenry for talking with us. It was a delight. We also want to thank Ken's lovely wife who served some great coffee. It was great. And they had us into their home, not only on air, but then for probably another hour afterwards. And uh, I think actually, Chris, you even got a French lesson. Reed Lewis, he pulled me aside in the corner and we just did a little mini lesson. Well, and I think probably the fun of it was the energy that these three guys had and respect and camaraderie that they had that then just spilled over and made it for a great environment to have a fun interview and discussion. So it was was great to be kind of almost a fly on the wall to be part of this discussion and listen to how this whole expedition got started and their experience. So, Patrick, I got to say, I think this brings our Canoe Chronicles to a close. Chris, what are you going to do? Let's name it. We had two episodes of LaSalle and the Voyageurs. We had the Paul Meineke, Canoe the Mississippi episode. And then we have the Marquette Joliet expedition. And reenactment. So, you know what that means? We got to canoe up the river and we got to stake our claim. We're done with the explorers at this stage. We're off the water. And it's now moving towards permanent settlement and the history of Chicago going forward from there. So the next episode, episode eight, the first settler. So Patrick, as you know, when we were kind of wrapping things up with the interview, we started just talking about Ralph Fries because we all thought the world of the man. Sure, Mr. Canoe. And then the Lewis brothers started telling really funny stories about hanging out at the Chicagoland Canoe Base. About Ralph Fries. They were funny and appreciative, and this story will be our outro for the episode. Thank you for listening. Another thing that used to always tickle me, when you go into Ralph's store, there was a sign that said, if you're in a hurry, you're in the wrong place. Because <laughs> when Ralph waited on somebody, he was theirs totally, yeah. and he ignored anybody else who came into the shop. I was over at the shop one day, and... A guy, obviously a family man, a father, drove up and he said, Ralph, I want to buy a canoe. And he said, well, you're in the right place. This is a canoe shop. And he said, how do I go about it? What do I, do I just ask for a canoe? Ralph says, well, it depends on what you're going to do with the canoe. And the guy said, well, I was going to take my family out. You going to do any white water? Well, no, I hadn't thought of that. Well, then you want a lake canoe, a cruising canoe. Oh, okay. Well, do you have it? Do I have any? This is a canoe shop. (laughs) Audio editing 
by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.